Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we're broadcasting from the International Culinary Center in beautiful downtown Soho, New York. And my guest today is one of the new living legends in New York City, Bryce Schumann, who's the executive chef of Bettany. And you would have to have been um, asleep like Rip Van Winkle in the last uh, two, three years if you don't know Bryce, because in uh, 2013, Bettany got one Michelin star. In 2014, it got Best Restaurant of the Year from Esquire and was a finalist for Best New Restaurant at the James Beard Awards. Uh, they also got three stars from the New York Times that year. And this year, in 2015, uh, he's one of Star Chef's Rising Star Chef, or he is the Rising Star Chef, and, and he was named um, a Food & Wine Best New Chef. Bryce, how do you handle all that? Um, I don't know. I... Uh, I, I don't know. These are all things that you dream of getting, uh, growing up as a chef or being a young chef, especially things like the you know, um, you know, Food and Wine magazine, and uh, you know, and being a chef in New York. The New York Times is incredibly important as well. And I, you know, moving to New York, I just wanted to be a great cook, and you know, spending you know so many years at Love Madison Park, and then trying to find my way, trying to teach and train and train and train and train and learn and learn and learn and train until I felt like I was ready to venture off and become a chef. You know, these are the things that you, the recognition that you dream of getting for the hard work that you put in leading up to that. That's a great answer. Uh, so tell me, um, I, I think I read you were born and raised in North Carolina. Why don't you have a southern accent? Yeah, no, I, I was I was born in actually I was born in in uh, in Durham and actually a Duke uh, hospital, which I don't like to admit because I'm a Tar Heel fan, and um, <laughs> but I, and we lived in uh, Hillsboro, North Carolina, home of Hog Day, and um, also probably my favorite Bojangles on the planet. I don't know if you make it down there to get a Bojangles Cajun flavored chicken biscuits. Awesome, uh, my favorite. It's like my favorite fast food. Um, and then uh, I moved from Hillsboro to Chapel Hill. Uh, my folks were professors at Carolina, and uh, I lived there until you know, I guess about the second or third grade. And then I moved to Pennsylvania. My folks, I guess there's no southern accent because both my folks. One, my dad's from Washington State. My mom is from outside of Chicago. Um, and so it wasn't the thick southern. I, I guess living down there, I probably had it more than 
now. And I've actually lived in New York now longer than I've ever lived in one single place. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I've lived in North Carolina, the state, longer than I've lived anywhere else, but I've lived in New York longer than I've lived anywhere singularly. And so I moved to Pennsylvania, then I moved back to North Carolina, I moved to Greenville. Then from there, I moved to Winston-Salem. Uh, then I moved back to Greenville. Then I moved to, to uh, San Francisco. And then from San Francisco, I moved to Delaware for a little bit. And Can the credit cards keep up with you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I actually, and Delaware was actually really fun. I had a great time uh, down there. Um, you know, part of the time I was sort of barbacking at this, like, Irish pub, like, just saving money to travel or to move here to New York, and... Wait, wait, wait. Now we're getting too too far ahead. Uh, so you, until you were seven, you're down in North Carolina, and you know, barbecue, wonderful southern food. How much of a food impression did you have on in your early life? I mean, quite a bit, really. You know, I think that food is always very important you know there's also yeah yes we were going to pig pickings hog day there's also down there in hillsborough they have the festival for the eno you know the eno the eno river festival so it's like uh they have music and we go listen to doc watson play and lots of bluegrass and uh and also just great great uh southern food um you know everything from oh man you know the the whole hog barbecue to you know Brunswick stew and hush puppies and uh, with a little bit of Texas peat and butter on them. That's Ed Mitchell territory, isn't it? Yeah, I think hog. yeah he's um, he yeah he was at the pit for many years in Raleigh and then he's moved on. I, I think he does his own private business now. I don't know if he has a restaurant anymore, but it is Ed Mitchell territory. Um, so but so I, what what what's, when you were five? What was a dinner like at uh, home? I, Okay, so all right, so so uh, my folks split up when I was pretty young. Um, well, my mom, uh, she's she uh, you know she's a she's a cultural anthropologist. So she was always she's always studying and learning about new cultures. And she at a very when she was young, she lived in Taiwan um, for a couple of years, and then I. Also, we travel a lot, but and she was always very interested in different cuisines and cultures, and we were always going to the farmer's market and things. And so um, my mom was really always cooking, and we were always eating at home. There was always like, you know, I, I had duties too. You know, it was always my responsibility to set the table, to uh, make a salad, to clean up the dishes afterwards. These were like daily responsibilities of mine. And mom would cook, you know, whatever great, you know, veggies we would get our hands on. And and sometimes, you know, she would do different variations on different dishes, like, um, you know, sometimes cooking, you know, she would cook like... um, you know, like a wonton soup sometimes, really? like a broth. She, was that she could, courageous. she, yeah, <laughs> or, um, or she would do just classic southern food. We could have collards or black eyed peas or, uh, you know, cornbread. She was a great baker. She, uh, very adept. You know, she was great at making all different types of breads and cookies and things around Easter and uh, the holidays. Just, um, she's super talented. And then later in life, found out that she was, uh, um, you know, has a gluten intolerance. And so now she does just great gluten-free baking as well. And, you know, we've done some things cooking together and, and, and 
also at the restaurant now I have lots of gluten-free things because I want my mom to come and enjoy, be able to enjoy whenever she wants. So that was kind of important to me. But at home, the food was always, you know, very fresh, flavorful. Um, there was always something cooking. Okay, so for comfort food, when you have a cold and your nose is all, you know, what, what's your comfort food when you're not feeling well? I mean... Chinese food. I mean, I love <laughs> Chinese food. Very interesting. I, mean, I eat Chinese food. I, it's my favorite food to eat, really, I guess. I love, like... Is that because of your mother's Chinese no, food? No, I think it's just because I love Chinese food, and it's hard not to, because there's so much... It can be anything from, like, something very comforting, like a bowl of winter melon, bitter melon soup, um, winter melon soup, and uh, some wine chicken, which is, like, very comforting and, you know, very Shanghai-style, you know, um, soothing to eat, and, or it could be just, like, intense and fiery, like, uh, you know, a Sichuan hot pot or, you know... uh, any of the like the three pepper chicken or where did you where did you get this real insight into and taste sight into Chinese food? I mean, here in New York, I guess. I, like, so it's a, I, it's a recent... Uh, yeah, I think in New York or in also in uh, San Francisco, you know, I'd go out to eat and get dim sum down uh, living out there in San Francisco. Because actually, Rubicon, where I was working out there at the time, was pretty close to Chinatown, actually. I mean, everything's pretty close to everything in San Francisco. It's not that seven by seven square miles. Um, and... You could walk. I could walk, and I could walk everywhere. Also in San Francisco, I did love that about that town is that I could. I was really walking a ton, and um, I could easily walk into Chinatown and find dim sum for like a quarter, you know, a piece, and you just get a big pile of this stuff, and you know, chow out. And being a broke cook, it's you know, it's pretty easy. So, so but um, I thought I read that you had a very um, you, you traveled the world a lot and ate lots of interesting things what how did that happen and in what period um okay so yeah we did do some traveling uh, my mom and i i i traveled you know i traveled when i was pretty little i guess i was about three or three or four with my mom we traveled to the arctic uh, we lived. She took a three-year-old to the Arctic. Yeah. Where where did you go and what did you do? I mean, she, yeah, my mom, she was like, well, Bryce is with me. We're just going to go, you know, and, and – we went to we went to Baffin Island, a town called Clyde River. Clyde is you is know, that in the Hudson Bay? Yeah, it is a, yeah, it is. It's above the Hudson Bay, actually. It's um, it's above the Arctic Circle. So, uh, we were in the Arctic, and we were there for about thirteen months. And oh, like it wasn't just a quick visit. What were what were you doing there? So my my mother wrote her dissertation on our stay with the Inuit, and she was studying actually about uh, how seal hunting. Uh, because I think the Canadians were trying to like outlaw seal hunting, mm-hmm. and this is something that is very near and dear to the Inuit way of life, and it is actually a uh, there's a staple mm-hmm. for their food and uh, and their living. And so my mom was wanted to study just how seal and seal in the culture and um, how the the Inuit ate and uh, and lived, and so. You know, she decided she would go there for over, you know, for over a year to see an entire year of, of living with the Inuit and how they subsisted and how they survived, because 
not a very hospitable place, you know what I mean? But um, <laughs> Especially in the winter. And, and to think, you know, people think, oh, seals are so cute, I can't imagine, you know. And they are cute, but uh, it is an important, you know, the seal, it's a... It's it's important to the Inuit culture for the subsistence and, and the, the uh, you know the sustaining of life and um, you know. What what were your memories? You were so young. Do you remember uh, it? Yeah, little bits and pieces. I you know I remember. I uh, I remember riding on a sled. This. Um, so they travel by snowmobile, ba- or they this I don't know things may be vastly different, and I'm sure they are now. But I remember then travel a lot of travel by snowmobile, and you know they have these long wooden sleds that are attached to the snowmobiles, and I think they're called yamatik or something like that. And my my ineptitude is like zero, so please forgive me, all of any Inuit that are listening to this. I apologize. Um, so I think it's called a yamatuk, and it's like the sled. And riding on the sled, you sort of pack all your stuff on it, and you take the sled out to the, um, you take the sled out to, you know, where your campground is if you're going hunting. And I remember riding on the sled. I remember, I remember there was like a little store in, uh, like a Hudson Bay Company store in town, and. Um, and I remember wanting, like, uh, candy or something, and my mom would say it was too expensive. And I think uh, I think Inuktitut for too expensive was, like, Akituyualu or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Again, forgive my Inuktitut. Um, as well as, like, the... Um, oh, gosh. I remember, like, wandering... I think I, like, wandered into a bar one time. I don't know how this happened. <laughs> but there was, like... Definitely video games going on, like the stand-up video games. Mm-hmm. And somebody gave me a Kit Kat bar, and that was pretty awesome. Yeah. So, do you remember anything of the landscape? Was it just yeah, it's ice? I mean, everything's covered. It's basically ice everywhere. You know, you think everything's covered in slow snow, but it's like layers of ice, and it's pretty much permafrost. At, you know, I mean, the the ice is thicker or thinner depending on the season, but it's ice and. You know, and you are—you have to be careful out there. I, I remember the ice being very dangerous. Like there could be cracks in the ice, and like, you know, if you fell off the sled and slid into a crack, that's basically the end of you. You know, this sort of message being very clear to me. How do you think it's imprinted on you as an adult? I—I don't know. I'm—I mean, you're so little then. I guess part of it is that I—I I was. It made, helped me to be very outgoing, I think, and. Um, very, I'm innately, I think now very ex- sort of ex- ex- accepting, and um, I'm not. You know, it, it, I think that that has really helped me to become the person that I am, and that you know, I always look to see the best in people. I don't, I don't necessarily pass judgment before I get to know them. And um, that's great. Where else did your mom take you? For any extended oh, yeah, period. I mean, we went to Costa Rica for about nine months and lived in the the rainforest while she studied uh, howler monkey uh, behavior and sort of like how you know howler monkeys would uh, take care of their young and communicate and you know we're like traipsing through the Costa Rican rainforest with like these. How old were you then? I think a little a little older. I think maybe five or six, and um, I. 
we had like I remember these sound sound recording machines. I remember a little bit more about Costa Rica, and that would like take the sound of the howler monkey, and then it would record it and then blast it back out into the rainforest. It would base and it would bring the howler monkeys closer because they would like hear the, a repeat of their call and they'd come closer and closer. And then we had this little stuffed animal howler monkey that looked like a baby howler monkey, you know? <laughs> and, like, they they would come pretty close, you know, maybe, I don't Did know, 30, 30, 30 yards or so. So you're alone. Are you the only kid on in this yeah, environment? Yeah, basically. I mean, there was it was kids, college students, my mom, other graduate students, and, um, you know, uh, you know, professor, you know, yeah, academics. So where else did you live for a long stint anywhere else? Um, I was in Greece for a couple months, but that was just, uh, that was, we were on a, like a Minoan, uh, dig and this is on a little island off of Crete and I was about 13 then and we did, you know, uh, there was actually, I, I really got into the cuisine there in Greece because there's just like just delicious food and the tzatziki. Like I remember just eating tzatziki every day and like dipping bread and great olive oil. And I fell in love with dolmas and like anything stuffed, like stuffed, stuffed veggies with like ground lamb and rice and mint and like uh, lots of olive oil and lamb fat and like um, also... Uh, really, there was on Crete, there were these, like, little red fish. They were just, like, crispy and um, so good. And you just eat the whole fish. And it was, like, I was just blown away that you just eat the whole fish. And, um, but I was, like, whatever. You eat the head, the bones, everything. It was this little red fish. I think it was probably, like, a mullet of some sort. But it was, like, really small. Either that like or maybe it, was a, maybe it was like a smell. Yeah. Would they deep fry them? Uh, I think they were deep fried, yeah. you know, or like pan fried yeah. kind of, but just so good. And tons of salads, big Greek salads, just, uh, and it was hot and there's cicadas everywhere and just olive groves. And I remember the dogs, we'd feed the cicadas to the dogs and every day, I don't know, there's just the woman who was at the house where we were staying would try to get me to drink a cup of olive oil like every day for my health. It was like, I remember. Whoa, is that what they did? A cup uh, of olive oil? Not like a cup, but like a yeah, shot. It was shot, like a shot, shot of, of olive oil. Olive oil. Wow. olive oil was coming right there from their house, you know, from the trees. Um, Whoa, what a palette. Well, we're going to take a little break here and we'll Brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. 
Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. story and today my guest is Bryce Schumann and he is just telling us about his quite remarkable childhood and your mother was fearless taking you from the Arctic to the jungle <laughs> to Minoan digs. So where where did this all coalesce in your, your brain where you wanted to be a chef and not a cultural anthropologist or a rocket scientist? I mean I you know I think so f- I don't know. I really wanted to be an actor. I like. I really thought that I would get into. Uh, I was really into theater, and when I was in high school, and actually before that, when I was in middle school and elementary school, I was always in like the school play, or um, you know, I always had some, and I was just into it. I like to be on stage. I like to be in front of people. I wasn't fe- scared of like. Of, I, I mean, I would get a little stage fright a little bit, but I wasn't. I was not really super scared to like get in front of people, and to present or talk to people at all. And I, you know, so I thought I would be an actor, and I got into theater in high school. I ended up going to a conservatory for high school, um, the North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston Salem, which I loved. That school was amazing. It was just like. A beautiful place. I've never enjoyed school so much in my entire life. um, At that time, it was just like I would have academic classes in the morning, and then we'd have theater classes until 9 to 10 at night, and then you'd wake up in the morning and go back. And it was five days a week. And then uh, it was also residential, which is kind of cool as a senior, which was also very dangerous because a senior in high school living away from home is, you know, you have to have a very strong will (laughs) and to behave. I'm not very well behaved when left to my own devices sometimes, you know what I mean? So I, you know, so I love the work and I, what I really, really need is in my life, um, just the type of person that I am, I kind of need structure. Like I, I, like I, um, I thrive when there's lots of structure, you know what I mean? And I don't know. That environment, there wasn't a tremendous amount of structure. And being an actor, you don't have a lot of structure. It's just like you have to create your own structure. That's Uh, That's called adulthood, actually. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) All right. So, you know, I I came to New York. I auditioned for a number of schools that I really wanted to get into. And I got into a couple of great schools. You know, I I think I got into Ithaca and I got into DePaul in Chicago. And I probably should have gone to DePaul. It's like a great acting school. And, um, Chicago's a great a great town too. I but I really wanted to go to like CalArts or like Tisch or I was just so deterred or to go back to the North Carolina School of the Arts because I really loved the, the the campus there and and the and I you know, I didn't get into those schools, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to bring some more life experience to my monologues. I'll, you know, and monologues are such bullshit. They're just like 100%, um, you know, an unnatural act. It's no, it's a terrible judge of somebody's ability to be an actor, I think, but that's another story. Um, and 
so I took a year off and I was like, oh, I'll go to Wilmington. I'll like, you know, I'll do some commercial work or whatever because Wilmington was really blowing up as sort of a television scene because there was like Dawson's Creek was going on down there. They're shooting commercials down there, this sort of thing. And I didn't do any of that. I like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I got like really into um, drum and bass and jungle music and uh, going to sort of like all night parties and <laughs> dancing until like nine in the morning and um, yeah, sort of lost sight of that. And so I needed a job. And so I started washing dishes at a restaurant in, uh, in Greenville in North Carolina and washing dishes led to... Uh, you know, working the cold apps, working then, which led to working hot apps, which led to saute and the grill. And then the next thing I knew it, I was about two and a half years later, I was the uh, chef de cuisine of the restaurant. In Wilmington. This is in Greenville, North Carolina. Oh, Greenville. Yeah. Okay. So I, and it was at this moment where I was like, okay, what am I going to do? So am I going to stick around here in Greenville? Am I going to you know, move to New York and try to be, try to pursue a, an acting career? Uh, or am I going to, you know, go to culinary school? Why did you think you had to go to school if you were already a chef? I needed something to, like, just jumpstart my, my life, really. You know what I mean? I was like, I, I would have been just the, a chef there in Greenville, I need to get out of. I need to get out of the town. I, I mean, like, there's a lot of great things in Greenville, North Carolina, and um, you know. But I was not sort of. I was not necessarily looped into those great things, and and so I needed something to like kick my life into gear, and you know, a sort of a school or something like that was something that I knew would benefit me. So, like. So I decided to go to culinary school, and I wanted to move about as far away from that part of the world as I could. That So I moved from eastern North Carolina to San Francisco, California, and I went to uh, California Culinary Academy, and uh, and I knew I wanted to live in a city also, so that, that really, you know, I, I thought, I, I don't know, I... I really wanted to live in a city. It was important to me, and I wanted to see California and San Francisco was always sort of like seemed kind of cool to me. And so I did. I showed up in in uh, I showed up there on Polk Street with my guitar case and like a, a duffel bag, and that's it. With no place to stay, essentially, and like just was like, hey, I'm enrolled in school here. How do I get How do I get a place to live? Like, I need a place to stay tonight. Like. And uh, somehow they organized uh, uh, some some living quarters for me that was just uninhabitable. It was like, you know, pension style. It was like, <laughs> it was like uh, I had a room with like two other. It was literally a room with two other students. Bathrooms down the hall. People are just partying until like you know nine in the morning every morning. I was trying to get away from that. I was like, it's like okay, I'm here to get serious about this and to like push and become a chef and I 
you know, so I was like, I got to get out of here. And finally, I moved to another, like another residential hotel, actually on Post Street. It's called the Fitzgerald, and where I, I was lived just down the, uh, essentially roommates with my now very good friend Brett Cooper, who's a chef in San Francisco. And Brett and I were in the same culinary school. We lived in the same hall at the Fitzgerald. Basically, we were next. To, I mean, there, I had my own room, which is great, and he stayed right next to me. And um, and then we worked together at Rubicon. And what was that like? That's owned by Francis Ford Coppola. Larry Stone was the sommelier. Uh, yeah, it was Tracy Desjardins there. At so that time? no, no, no. So okay, so I went to culinary school. While I was in culinary school, I, I ended up working at this restaurant called Postrio, which was Wolfgang Puck's restaurant in San Francisco, and. I was going to school and working at Postrio at the same time, which was a great experience because it prepared me for the hard work that it is to be a chef because I'd be in class at 6 or 7 in the morning and I'd be at work by 2 p.m. and I'd work until midnight, 1 in the morning, and then I'd get up and go to school and do that, you know, five days a week. And that is, I mean, that's really what it is to be a chef, like... You, that it, it prepares you in that kind of learning, this double learning, this like because culinary school is one type of learning, and then working in the restaurant is a different type of learning. They're both important, I think, because you get a really well-rounded education. You learn to talk about cuisine and food. You learn the history of it, um, but you also learn how to boom boom in a restaurant, which you really need to have. Boom boom, uh, I like that. Yeah, right. Yep. You know. Yeah. And um, so. Uh, then after about a year and a half at uh, Postrio, a little more than that, I went to work at Rubicon, where Brett was working at the time, and Brett had already been a good friend of mine. And he externed. He had externed at uh, there. He had also trailed a little bit. I think done some stages with uh, Chef Hum at Campton Place, and he had told me about him. And then he was working at Rubicon, and then I went to Rubicon and worked with uh, with with Brett and uh, the chef was Stuart Brioza and Nicole Krasinski was the pastry chef and her she's now Nicole Brioza I believe oh. they've since been married they since got married and they were co-chefs together and I think they they were from Chicago originally and uh, or not from Chicago but they were both cooking in Chicago I think they met together and then they moved together to um, sort of western Michigan to this restaurant called Tapawingo and uh, Stuart uh, was a food and wine best new chef as, as the chef at Tapawingo and then he moved to San Francisco to take over after Dennis Leary was the chef of Rubicon Dennis is a brilliant chef as well um, and you know I worked for him and uh, Nicole with Brett for about a year and a half and until I, I decided to move to Delaware to save some money. Now, I love my time at, at Rubicon. Was uh, Chef Stewart's like one of the most uh, inspiring people to work for. He's so charged. He's he's intensely creative. He has a very specific point of view. He loves the farmer's market and just fresh ingredients. And he's into like great flavor. Everything is just tremendous flavor. He's. Um, so wait, wait, so let's get back to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you to Delaware? Um, Delaware, I guess Delaware. Um, I moved to, so Jen had a, uh, Jen's folks have a beach house. 
in Lewis, Delaware. And I... And Jen is... Jen is my wife. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> All right. So you meet your wife somewhere along this. Okay. So Jen and I... So my wife and I started... She went to East Carolina. So we met in Greenville uh-huh. when I was a dishwasher and she was um, she was a waitress. And we started dating there in Greenville. And then she followed me out to San Francisco. And oh, then, sweet. And then we moved back to uh, Delaware. And she... Um, yeah, she's amazing. Um, so we. So how long were you in Delaware? Uh, I was there for uh, I guess almost a year and a half, but in between that we were doing some traveling. So I I started I essentially was bar backing at like this Irish bar to save money and it's kind of a cool bar they had like slips where you could bring your boat up to the bar and like I don't I, it was good it was a great summer job to say to to earn money tell you tell you truthfully I was kind of miserable without like feeling that I was growing and learning as a chef and um but it is a testament that you can you know, you can take like a moment and take a break and do something else. But it was for it had a specific goal. And the specific goal was to save money to like go to Europe to do some traveling. And then Jen and I ended up backpacking for like six months or seven in months Europe. in Europe. And using all the money that we saved over the summer to do that. And then we moved back and we moved back to Delaware. And I ended up um bar back net it burnt to the ground. Oh. Um and so I was like, Well what am I gonna do? And they rebuilt it, and then two weeks after they rebuilt it, it burnt down again. No. Was it arson? I don't know. So the first time was arson, yes. The first time was arson. They caught the guy. They had videos of him, like, pouring gasoline all over the bar. Oh, the poor. Yeah. So, but the second time, I don't know. Um, then, so I ended up cooking uh, at a restaurant called Naj in uh, Rehoboth. And I met actually who somebody who's become one of my great friends. His name's Hari Cameron, and he has a restaurant now called Amuse in uh, Rehoboth. And Hari's a talented dude. And if you ever go down to Delaware, you should definitely go check out Amuse. He's the man. He's uh, the man. Hari, Hari's awesome. Okay, um, Hari, Hari and I became great friends. But I ended up cooking with Hari, and I was not going to cook there at all the whole time because I was like, hey, I just need I need a certain amount of money to move to New York, and. Um, and the owners of the restaurant were very generous and said, okay, well, at the end of your stay, I'll, we'll grant you this amount of money if you decide to stay and just cook with us full time. And so I said, sure, let's do that. So it allowed me to then have that chunk of change to, to move to New York. And as anybody knows, uh, you know, if you move to New York, having never lived here before, it seems daunting because you're like, oh, my God, what? I need first, last, and deposit, and rent is what? And, you know, all these things sort of stacking up. It seemed it seemed like a tremendous financial mountain that you had to crawl or had to, you know, had to, to climb. So uh, it was nice. It was, it, it was great to be able to save that money to move here, and it allowed me to get a jump start. And so I moved here to New York, started trailing around. I wanted to work at the All best right, wait, place. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back, and we're going to get the whole New York story. Now you're ready for prime time here. Welcome. 
Welcome back. We're listening to, you're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton. We're coming to you today from the International Culinary Center, and Bryce Schumann is my guest, who's the executive chef of Bethany, which is one of the hottest restaurants right now. How long does it take to get a reservation? <laughs> what do we have to do to get in? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think generally if you come really early or if you come really late, you can probably get in there, you know, any time. But primetime reservations are about two weeks out. So Okay. All right. Well, now I know you, so I'm going <laughs> to use it. I got your email. So tell us what happened when you came to New York. And where, you know, when is the tipping point when you start getting all these accolades? What, why, when, where? If you can give us an insight. I mean... What, what year was it that you came to New York? I came to New York in 2007, and I started, I, I trailed around. I, I knew as, as a cook, I wanted to find one restaurant that I could really dedicate some time to. I wanted to find one chef who I could, who could treat, you know, I could treat as a mentor, somebody who would teach me, who would train me, who would uh, bring me up. I wanted to find one place that would really um, to help to define me and, and the career that I was going to be on. I wanted it to be, uh, you know, a fine dining restaurant. I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted to work at a restaurant that had three Michelin stars and four stars from the New York Times. And um, these things were important to me. And I trailed, I started trailing around. So, you know, I trailed it at, like, Jean-Georges, at Per Se, at, um, I trailed at, uh... Danielle? I didn't trail at Danielle. I did trail at, uh, at Robichon. Oh, and, uh, Robichon was open then. And then also at, at 11 Madison Park. Also had some friends who were working at Alto. So I, st- I stopped in there as well. Um, and the kitchen at 11 Madison Park. It it was not three Michelin stars. It was not a four-star restaurant at the time. It was, but the kitchen was just on fire. It was, you know, Chef Hume was just like pushing the team and uh, every day it was just like so intense. It was like uh, I mean that, on that trail I was just like, the food was just beautiful um Everything just looked really. It, it was just immaculate. It was, I, I don't know. It really felt spe- like a special place, and I knew that I wanted to, to work there. And so I, I sat down with uh, Chef Whom after Chef after the trail, and I was like, okay, I want to start at the bottom. You know, I want to work every station. I want to work Garmage. I want to like learn everything. You know, I'm. Um, and he's like, yes, 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 of course. And um, and you will. And, you know, and I was like, okay. And I'm, look, I'm like looking for a mentor and a teacher and somebody's going to like bring me up. And like, and Chef was like, well, I don't know if I'm that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Basically, but like, but like. I'm, you know what I mean? This is what we're doing. And, uh, you know, and basically like what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Right. And, um, you know, and then after, you know, six, six and a half years of working with him, he became that person. Yes. So, uh, when did you know you were ready to be your own 
chef here in arguably the toughest city to make it, you know, as a culinary chef. What what does it take to know, okay, I'm ready to have my own restaurant? And you're taking on investors and changes. It's not just the critics, and but you've got him. What was the tipping point inside you? I mean, I knew that... At a certain point in time, you have to decide for yourself what do you, where do you want to be and what do you what do you want to do. So, I I was the executive sous chef at Eleven Madison Park at the time, and you know I had worked on, edited and and wrote with Chef Hum and uh, Will Gadara two cookbooks. We traveled the world. Uh, from cooking anywhere from, you know, different cities in the United States to in the palace at Versailles <laughs> to um, uh, to, you know, Austria and, like, flying in stunt planes with the Red Bull fighters to, like, it was just like... It was, That's it, unbelievable! It was like... <laughs> What else? I wasn't sure what else that what I wanted to do with there at Eleven Madison Park. It, that we achieved four stars from the New York Times, three Michelin stars. Um, there was almost every James Beard Award you could win while I was there during my tenure. The um, I knew that if I. I would. I wanted. I really am in tremendous debt to you know Chef Hume and Will, and I knew that if I wanted to stay with them and with their company that's growing, you know, if if I was going to be the chef of the restaurant or if any restaurant opened, I knew Chef is it's going to be his restaurant, I, and it would never be my restaurant. You know what I mean? And if we opened a restaurant in London, there was going to get three Michelin stars, was it there, would be... Was, was there this burning Bryce inside yeah. you saying, I want to do my food, this is great, I've learned a lot from Daniel, but it's time to let the genie out of the bottle, and I've got to do my thing? Yeah, that's what. That's the conclusion you come to, and you say, okay, if I, if I, you know, I want to be respected by my peers, I want to, I want to cook, I want to cook great food. And, um, you know, it's just the logical step for moving forward. And, you know, a long time ago in acting school, I remember one of my acting coaches drew a line down a chalkboard and he said, over here you have safe and over here you have unsafe. Okay. And on the safe side, you know, you could be an acting teacher. You can work in a school. You can, you'll have a nice job. Probably you'll make a decent living wage, probably have a nice house, a nice life. And that's it. You know, uh, you might have your own little community theater or whatever children's theater you want to put on, and good for you. You know, or you have unsafe, and you can, you know, move to New York, you can live in a box, you can deal with rejection all day long, all day long, all day long. People will shoot you down, you will learn. But at the end of the tunnel, there's a slight chance that you might, um, you might find a way to make it big. And, um, so for me, you know, that's the decision there. It's like, do you, are you going to be safe or are you going to be un- unsafe? And, um, you know, I, I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to believe in myself. And so 
the unsafe didn't seem so unsafe. And so that's the way I went. Whoa. So you opened Bethany, and almost immediately it got incredible reviews. Did that... Did that surprise you, or did you think, you know, we've really done our homework here? And I mean, you you opened up in a very expensive part of town. It wasn't, oh, we've got two years to ramp this up. What kind of pressure was on you? I mean, the pressure is tremendously intense. It's uh, financially, it's uh, it's a bear. the The neighborhood is, I mean, Fifth Avenue and Fifty Seventh Street is some of the most expensive real estate on the planet. It's um, it is not uh, it is not easy to work with occupancy costs and overhead costs that uh, that exist in that neighborhood and I as far as the reviews and accolades go coming early I was you know certainly hoping for them because I don't know you know we weren't necess- before the Times review we weren't necessarily a busy restaurant and without being a busy restaurant we would not have been able to be open still so um you know that helped tremendously and how much are you in your kitchen all the time (laughs) what do you think about i mean do you have desires to go out and be a judge on one of these cooking shows or i mean do you think you have to do that to keep the restaurant full um or you're taking the traditional andre sultner route of being in the kitchen all the time and really pounding away at that restaurant where where is your head on all that because you do have the notoriety to to really i think take a lot of different options i mean i think that i think that it's important to keep your focus on the restaurant and there are many opportunities and things that'll that pull and draw you away from the restaurant and you have to choose and decide what what those things are important for instance you know i wasn't there on i'm generally not there on mondays we're closed sundays i'm not there on mondays because i'm generally with my daughter and i think that's important and i have a one-year-old her name's emilia and she's awesome and um she's but essentially and i take mondays to be with her um, sometimes I bring her to the restaurant, uh, in fact, quite a bit. Uh, and uh, but then on this Monday and Tuesday, I was in uh, Washington D.C. doing some advocacy work for No Kid Hungry. And having a one-year-old, you know, this is an issue that's important to me. And it, it, there are like one in five children in the United States that are food insecure. I won't bore everybody with this, but this is important. And uh, that kids they don't have access to food. Mm-hmm. And uh, the food's there, and the children are certainly there. And, you know, there's little bits in the legislation that prevent, you know, it, it to be getting to them. And also, like, providing free and reduced um, lunches and also free breakfast for all children in school. Like, in New York City, we have the, one of the largest school districts in the country, but we're, like, last in free breakfast. And I don't know. I don't like to necessarily get into politics so much, but it seems like such a simple thing. And I know that, you know, we talk about issues, social issues that are big enough to matter, but, you know, achievable. And this is definitely one of them. So, you know, I went with, um, you know, with uh, Share Strength and with their No Kid Hungry campaign to to D.C. to do some advocacy, to talk to some Congress uh, people. 
and uh, about about this as the CNR is coming up for review. Actually, yesterday. What's CNR? The, it's the Childhood Nutritional uh, Reinstatement. Is a reinstatement or re- childhood reinstatement? So it's an act that yeah, exactly. has to be passed by Congress. So it's essentially it goes through the child, the nutritional standards, the government's nutritional standards for school lunch and breakfast, and what constitutes a meal. Like has to have one protein, one you know, one vegetable, one fruit, one uh, grain, and milk is also part of it. And if you don't have all those, it doesn't constitute a grain. All this, it's all this crazy legislation that's uh, that's involved in it as well. That's you know. And big like corporations are involved as well, like Kellogg's and things like this. Like, who who bid to get their cereal or whatever in school in schools and school breakfast and things like that. So, and then you know it's in this legislation where they'll decide that yes. Wait, wait, wait. We're getting back to okay, you. I know, I know. We're going to do another show. No, you just given me an <laughs> I, idea, chef's story. I think we should get two or three chefs around the table and say how we're go- how we as the, our community is really going to move this forward if the politicians can't. <laughs> I so, think it could be a different show entirely, 100%. And, so we've run out, but, actually, we've run out of time in this right. show. But I'm going to ask you one last question. because it, it, I, I, I am in the restaurant is what I'm trying to say. And you have to pick and choose things that are going to draw you away from the restaurant and make sure that you choose the ones that are important. I think that's a great way to end this. I think it's been incredibly inspirational talking to you today. You... I hope you will come back and let's let's follow up on um, chefs as activists. I think I think it's where everybody I'm talking to is going. They care so passionately. Chefs are so generous and nurturing. It seems like a natural extension. It's been great to have you here today, Bryce. I really appreciate it. Please come back. Thank you. It's been great to uh, to be here. Shout out to Robin Cohen, Jack Inslee, our producers, and we'll see you next time. heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.